Hello, you are now listening to episode 52 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis. This is my show. I like to seek out interesting people, geeks, gurus, experimenters, what have you, and um, have them just tell me what, what they've learned while they've been been here on this planet you know I, I can't interview dead people so I talk to living people authors MDs Joe Blows farmers today I have the privilege of interviewing Michael Taft Michael has a website called beinghuman.org very interesting project. It's about being human. And what 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 greater thing should a human be interested in? Or something. Uh, <clears throat> so we talk uh, about meditation, the definition of ego in a bunch of other stuff. I typically get um, a depression sets in over me after an after one of these interviews for whatever reason. And this was different. I I felt like I, I had a high for a day or two after this. It was a really great experience for me. And I hope somehow magically it's the same for you we shall see hello hi michael yeah hey brian how's it going excellent how are you i'm doing pretty good man can you hear me just fine you sound great. Good. I actually like your volume level. It's a little low, and usually people come across real hot, so I have trouble matching their <clears throat> volume, so this should work out perfectly. Excellent. What are we talking about tonight? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's up to you, man. That's the trouble when I, you know, it's my show, but... I, I don't have an agenda, so. <laughs> well, you do have an agenda to ask some questions, so let's just start there. I'm good right. at fielding questions. Okay, cool. So, you know, I know about you just a tiny, just a, a bit, um, just because of Lindsay Stark. Miss Stark, indeed. So That is the connection. Right. So um, I checked out uh, your new project, beinghuman.org? Yeah. And tell us a little bit about what's going on with that. So um, beinghuman.org is kind of multifaceted. The basic idea is to investigate how our understanding of what it means to be a human being is changing as uh, new developments unfold in neuroscience and psychology and evolutionary biology and so on. Like the story we're telling ourselves about who we are continues to change. 
as all this new information comes to light. So the idea behind being human is investigating that, you know, helping it to unfold in whatever capacity we can. You know, we have a a conference that we put on last year at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. And that attracted like 900 people. Um, That was sort of our first volley into, you know, this uh, field. And uh, we're going to do another one here in September um, at a different venue in San Francisco with about twice the capacity. So this is, you know, really fun. We have neuroscientists. We have anthropologists like uh, Robert Sapolsky. Uh, Sorry, he's a neuroscientist, but we'll have Robert Sapolsky. We'll have Joshua Green. We'll have um, just an incredible lineup. So the website is about supporting that. And uh, we have a current version up where we're in the process of, uh, of, we have a current version of the website up, but we're in the process of revamping it. So the uh, material is a little slow to refresh these days. Okay, but it's still an active and viable community and people should participate currently? Absolutely, yeah. It's getting... um, more active as time goes on when this uh you know we'll have the the new version of the site up here pretty quick let's say six weeks and then uh you know we'll be ramping everything slowly upward getting ready for the conference it's in september and uh, after that there'll be uh, a lot of events through the year and uh you know we're planning some really cool stuff and uh, so far, the community is really interesting. There's some really great people. So, yeah, when you say Robert Sapolsky, I, I mean, I want to buy a plane ticket. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he's. I don't know if you've watched any of his lectures on YouTube or anything, but this guy is the most interesting speaker and one of the funniest and most informed uh, profs I've ever seen. And for whatever reason, um, a lot of his lectures are uh, available for free online, and they're very worth it. Like, you can get his entire Stanford um, neurology class, like his, you know, level one neurology class free online. It's like 18 programs or whatever. Very worth it. Super fascinating. And how is someone like Robert Sapolsky um, what are his investigative techniques and what is he drawing from? Well, you know, his story is kind of famous. He's spent like the, the last several decades, um, half of the year out in the field in Africa, working with baboons. And, uh, you know, he's, he basically, um, you know, it's funny. He's like, baboons are, uh, basically, uh, horrible creatures. They're really unpleasant to each other and he doesn't like them very much, but he's learned a tremendous amount about stress, especially stress in primates from, um, you know, uh, uh, sedating them with darts and, you know, taking their blood levels, finding out, um, what's going on with their, with cortisol and, their various stress hormones and so on. And what he's come up with as sort of a bottom line, uh, besides being one of the world's foremost, foremost experts on the biology of stress is, um, that the lower you are on the sort of totem pole, 
You know, the lower you are in society's strata, the more stress you're under. And, um, the, you know, what he proved is that that's the case in baboon society. But then, um, this was replicated. The finding was replicated in human society. It just took a, um, research project where they could find where, you know, they were looking for a situation where, uh, people were sorted into perfectly regular social strata. And it turned out to be available in the British, um, civil service. So across the entire nation of, um, England, everyone at a certain level of, uh, the civil service had essentially the same job and the same, you know, number of reports, the same people they were reporting to and so on. So it was a really good situation to investigate stress, uh, versus position in the hierarchy. And uh, again, they had exactly the same finding, uh, which was the lower you were in that, um, organization, the sicker you got, the more stress hormones you had, the more, um, you know, uh, mental illness you had. It was very regular and predictable. It's interesting. <clears throat> could you see a situation where this could fall apart, though, with massive organizations where, say, a president or a CEO, someone who's has um, incredible power, responsibility, wealth, all these things, where that idea could kind of fall apart? At least for the person at the top, maybe. I mean, it's totally speculative. I don't know. But... I just can't imagine how the president goes to sleep at night. I actually I actually stay awake at night and wonder how he falls asleep. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is that, no, that's kind of stupid, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, under that kind of situation, I imagine, but he's not at the uh, head of, uh, in, in a way, uh, he has to respond to a lot of other people who have more uh, leverage than he has on various things. Right, you know? there's the whole delegation thing, you know, you delegate authority, but yet, I mean, you know, he has it, to sign the dotted line occasionally, so... Looking at the before and after pictures of American presidents. I'm not, I'm not feeling sorry for the man, but yeah, that before and after pictures of previous presidents is pretty astounding. It's like a rough job, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. In any case, the um, you know this general finding fits with uh, what in psychology is called family systems theory. You know, where basically uh, whoever is the youngest in the family takes the hit for the whole family because you know the uh, uh, because crap rolls downhill, basically. And uh, if the littlest kid doesn't have a dog to kick, they end up sort of um, as the holding tank for everyone else's stress. Ah, they're the dog that gets yeah. kicked. <laughs> it happens in a family, and it happens you know, in society at large. So anyway, I'm not an expert on any of this. Robert Sapolsky is, but it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. He's got... Um, a huge, uh, like a DVD series on stress that's very worth watching, although it will sort of bum you out when you realize the like 27 different ways that stress is ravaging your tissues right now. Right, right. So 
But let's let's go back in time then, and um, what brought you into researching, exploring this field, the fields that you're interested in? Well, you know, um, I've always been interested in what makes human beings tick, and uh, I started out my own journey be, as a mess. You know, I was very riddled with anxiety as a teenager. And, um, were you the it, youngest? I was in fact the youngest and, um, had quite a, uh, intense, uh, stress disorder. Uh, but this was like the seventies in Michigan. It wasn't like I was getting a lot of help for this there. You know, I wasn't going to a therapist or anything that just wasn't available. They were just supposed to just, uh, tighten up the bootstraps. You bet. Deal with it. Go to school. So, um, you know, and so is everyone else. It's not like I was special that way, but, um, <clears throat> I started investigating. I realized that if I was going to, you know, do anything about this, I had to figure it out for myself. So I started reading lots of books and experimenting and basically started working with meditation. And all these many years later, I'm still doing that. I'm a meditation teacher uh, along the line, you know, along the way, I ended up spending lots of time in India, lots of time in Japan, lots of time, you know, in really long retreats out in the wilderness or in underground or whatever. And, uh, that's ended up being a very effective, um, you know, way to work with anxiety. The meditation? That. And, um, so that, that was for me, you know, very helpful. But, uh, as part of that, uh, you know, I'm sort of a voracious reader. So I just, um, got more and more educated on that topic and began, um, also I was very into producing audio programs of my own and the two things came together when I started working at Sounds True, the audio publisher from uh, Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I was hired there to ship boxes, uh, you know, from their mail order room, but uh, was fairly quickly promoted into the editorial department and over time worked my way up to editorial director. So did I your stress to... uh, decrease over time <laughs> going from low man to, uh, you know, um, I would say that the stress was about the same, but that the job satisfaction was tremendously higher. Okay. So, you know, that's the resiliency factor, right? Is building the stuff that feels good. So, working with the things that uh, build inner resources. So, doing that work with all these various teachers and producing the audio programs was uh, ridiculously fun. And I did it for a lot of years. So, um, that got me educated up in that world pretty heavily. That's pretty yeah. cool, you know, when you're on a path of fun and learning. I, I can't imagine a better situation. Yeah, for me, that was about as good as it gets. And it's continued, you know. I um, realized somewhere along the way that people pretty much only listen to stories. Uh, every teaching program we had, if it didn't have a story, nobody cared. You know, no one would listen to it. So, um, I oh, This is really important. I'm actually making a note. Stories. It doesn't yeah, have a, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think. I, I think that's all we have. I, well, I, I mean, I don't mean. I'm. That's ridiculous to say. I mean, it is. 
it is massively important, the stories we have. Right. And I don't think it's ridiculous to say, I think um, it's the way we process information. It's the way we make sense of what's coming in, you know, is story. We're not analytical so much as story-based. Yeah, I've, I was listening to a psychology podcast, and he gave some examples of um, <clears throat> different problems that he would uh, present to an audience. Some groups couldn't solve the problem. Some could easily. Then when they investigated further, these were usually cultural groups, say a group from Japan or a group from a, a different uh, region. And if they had a story in their culture that they had been told typically as a child, they would come up with an answer in a snap. If they didn't have a story in their culture that they had heard, they had a difficult time um, solving the problem. Yeah, this is the... uh, These are like parables and things, you know, uh, treasure trail, the Hansel and Gretel things, things like that. Yeah, this is what Joseph Campbell's talking about with mythology is that, you know, our store of stories is, in a way, um, our storehouse of solutions to various problems. It's how it get, they get into your mind, you know. And um, I just noticed, just energetically, or whatever you want to call it, psychologically, when we would have a live audience uh, working with a teacher, uh, they would be polite and, you know, just sort of sitting there, and as the day wore on, getting more and more kind of placid but the minute the person would tell a story they'd perk up they'd become interested they'd ask questions they'd have interaction it's just how we think so to me that's become everything you know that's why even with being human to me uh it's a um about the story that we're telling ourselves about what a human being is what we are it's super fascinating to me how is the being human structured? What's how how does it work? If that's it's a simple. fair question. Question. It's simple. Um, it's uh, source is the Bauman Foundation, uh, which is essentially uh, Peter Bauman and his wife Allison, um, an original member of Tangerine Dream, who uh, from Berlin who came to America, um, had a record company called Private Music and ended up uh, becoming a philanthropist. So he approached me a a long time ago to work with him on a book, to edit a book for him about, um, you know, uh, what he called secular enlightenment, a sort of uh, non-spiritual psychological awakening. And uh, we just really hit it off. And he's... um, uh, funded a lot of work for uh, a lot of people in the um, uh, realm of neuroscience and psychological research and so on, and uh, has salons where we uh, get together and discuss topics. And eventually this uh, quest led to the conference and to a book that he and I wrote together called Ego and also to the website. So, What's the book Ego? The book Ego is, um, the, the long version of the title is Ego, The Fall of the Twin Towers and the Rise of an Enlightened Humanity. And that title, unfortunately, landed us in the uh, New Age section of the bookstore, even ah. though there's 
I was going to say, where did the Twin Tower, where, where does that, what's that coming from? Yeah, well, you know, there's nothing in the book uh, that's, um, there isn't a single New Age idea in the book. It's a book about um, the development of the human mind. And we, uh, in an original version of it, in an earlier version of it, we had, you know, illustrated a lot of the concepts with various stories. But out of all the stories, um, the best one was this one about 9-11, a particular 9-11 story. And that just had so much more energy and punch and fascination with it than any of the other stories. That you know, the other stories were like about Ignaz Semmelweis and his discovery of, you know, germ theory. It just they just didn't have the same intensity. And so we decided to go back through the book and change out all the stories for 9-11 stories. And so it kind of made it uh, thematic. Um, unfortunately, it sort of turned it into a 9-11 book. But um, in a way, I'm very happy with it. It made it so much more compelling to read. And I got to personally do a ton of research into uh, – Islamic fundamentalism, terrorism, 9-11, and so on. Wow. Interesting. I didn't see that coming. I did not see that coming at all. So that's interesting. Now now I'm more intrigued. Yeah, you know, we, um, the first, it's sort of divided into three parts. The first part is about uh, what what are emotions? Why do we even have emotions? Why did they evolve? What are they for? The second part is about the conceptual mind, uh, how did that evolve? What's its function? How does it uh, get misused? And then the third part is where that all might be going. Like, is there, um, um, are we still evolving? And if so, in a totally speculative sense, where might that go? So um, it was really fun to write. It was very ambitious. It probably should be three books. It, we got on uh, coast to coast with it, though. That was hey, that's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> you know, we're talking about the evolution of, uh, for example, the human intellect. Um, they keep asking us if we think that you know aliens had anything to do with it, right? <laughs> you got the, you know. the grays and the reptilians and the the grays and the blues, totally. And um, I just uh, said, you know, or my about it was well it's not it just doesn't seem that likely to me but you can't rule it out okay (laughs) so what the heck is ego what is this thing we're talking about uh what is an ego um you know it's basically a um my friend uh, the philosopher thomas metzinger uh puts it very succinctly it's like nobody has ever had or been an ego um, an ego is not something you can have. An ego is a transparent self-concept. So, in other words, in the simplest possible, absolutely reductive terms, it's an, it's an idea you have about yourself. And um, it's an incredibly powerful, potent idea and an extremely useful idea. But there are also some downsides. Yeah, whenever you say t- about someone... Boy, that guy's got an ego. It's never a positive statement. <laughs> right. Uh, <clears throat> although that's only been in the past. Uh, Is that recent? Yeah. But um, 
you know, it's actually really important to have an ego. If you don't have one, and, uh, that's called being psychotic. Right? You know, if you cannot generate an ego... Um, oh, that's, that's literally what psych- psychotic means? Yeah. You're yeah. egoless? Or, you know, you have a, a transient fractured ego. Okay, it okay. can't hold together enough to hold your experience together. And so, because it's not uh, able to... <clears throat> Uh, generate this continuous sense of being you. Basically, your unconscious mind keeps bursting into your moment-by-moment experience, which is why you're hallucinating and so forth. It's a very, very unpleasant thing. And um, uh, people who are psychotic obviously are not very effective. And so... They're effective um, at causing destruction for the people in their lives, I bet. Well, yeah, it's not psychopathic, right? It's psychotic. So yeah, I didn't mean evil. I just meant disrupting as in difficult to deal with. Super difficult. You know, in our society, this, these are heavily medicated people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it shows you that walking around with no ego whatsoever is, a, is not the thing you want to be doing. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, being constantly identified with your ego is different. You know, that's where um, a lot of pain and suffering comes in for you and everyone around you. So, but, but before we go further into that, you, you asked what it is. So nobody knows exactly yet. You know, we can't, it's not like there's an ego center in the brain, you know, some little, a ganglion somewhere that if you, you know, cut it out, the ego would leave. Uh, instead, it's massively distributed throughout the brain. But in terms of experience, um, the ego is composed of basically thoughts, you know, a certain subset of thoughts and feelings. So, for example, uh, body sensations like breathing and the heartbeat, another class of body sensations like emotions, um, and then certain types of thoughts like autobiographical memory and uh, the contents of um, current working memory and so on. So there's this whole subset of experience, uh, basically self-referential experience that all comes together. And um, there's a part of your brain whose job it is to kind of coordinate all that input and when that is coordinated, um, that's the experience of being you. Okay, so so is this ego? Is it just consciousness, or 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 can any you know? Does a person do? You, would an animal? Can an okay? Let me say this: Can an animal have an ego, other than a human animal? Um. That's a great question. Basically, you know, um, let's just set right now. We'll just say no one knows what an animal's experience is. So we'll just state that and I won't state it anymore. Okay. Yep. <laughs> that way. But um, people have done a lot of work to try to, there, there's two ways to answer this question or to kind of get at sort of answering it. One is to do certain types of tests on animals. Another one is to look at uh, rudimentary forms of human animals, i.e., Watch babies grow. So um, when you work with uh, 
non-human animals, like the most famous thing that people do to look at the development of ego-like things in animal brains is the mark test. You ever seen this? It's really cool. They put like, uh, uh, let's say a, a baboon is asleep in a cage or whatever. The experimenter will, while the baboon is asleep, put an X made of lipstick on the baboon's nose. Oh, I see. Mark. I was thinking of a name. Mark is in marking. Yep. Okay. Got it. And when the baboon awakes, um, they put a mirror near the cage. And <clears throat> really fascinatingly, the baboon does not, um, you know, look in the mirror and try to grab the mirror or see the f- really interesting baboon in the mirror. Instead, it touches its own nose. Um, I used a baboon as an example, but actually I don't know whether baboons can pass the mark test or not, but chimps certainly can. So the fact that the chimp touches its own nose not the no, you know, not the mirror, is a strong indication that they have something like a sense of me, you know, of an eye, of an ego. Because they look in that mirror and they go, oh, that's my nose. Well, they put their finger on their nose. Right. Okay. So like a baby looks in a mirror and it laughs just because it sees a laughing baby. Like it's just <laughs> yeah, its own you- feedback loop. You, if you put a mark uh, on the nose, the same thing. Baby's asleep, you put some lipstick on its nose. Let's say it's nine months old. It's going to go out of its way to try to find that really interesting baby. It's going to go around looking back at the mirror. It's going to touch the mirror. It's going to talk to the baby in the mirror. But um, by like 15 to 18 months, that baby's going to touch its own nose. It just It's a total change of model from... Who is that other being to, oh, that's me. Boom. There's a whole idea of me. So suddenly there's an emergence of ego or consciousness or awareness or what is that? It's a sudden emergence of the idea of me. The and idea of me. Yeah, that's would, the this, easy, would this that's, occur without, without um, society, culture, parents, family, people around? An isolated baby that was able to thrive i don't know there's no such thing you know humans don't thrive alone so I'm right not, right right but um i really couldn't say but okay. the thing is that um it doesn't all happen at once so initially there's just this very basic idea of me then and this is all from memory i could be getting my developmental stuff very wrong but in general then um within a few months uh they start being able to use pronouns like self-directed pronouns, like I, me, mine, talk about me, talk about my. So that's adding a whole nother layer. And then as more events pile up in life, children begin to have an autobiographical memory. So all of these things um, are pulled into this gravity of this idea of me and start feeding it and growing it. Yeah, you mentioned the autobiographical before. What does that mean? It's simple. What do you, uh, can you remember the house you lived in when you were six? Absolutely. Yeah, that's autobiographical memory. So it's a whole story of you that's in your head. And uh, that's a big contributing factor to ego. So why do we have one of these things? What's it good for? 
Why do we have an idea of me? Um, in a way, it's just um, a side effect of planning. So because our brains are, you know, evolved to be very good at planning, we have to, we we're able to do things like, Hey, look, there's uh, you know, a herd of elk on the other side of that river. I bet if we went upstream to where the Ford is, we could go across the Ford, get over there, kill the elk, eat them, have a party. Um, but as part of that, there's, so you're seeing in your mind's eye, you're seeing the river, you're seeing the Ford, you're seeing the elk, you're seeing yourself eating the elk and then, partying afterwards, dancing, etc. Right. But there's a, it's not just all those external objects you're seeing. You're seeing an image of yourself doing it. There's a picture in your, there's an avatar in your head of you in the, in all that planning In every bit of planning, there's always an image of yourself. And so, um, that's part of it. Okay. That contributes to the idea of me, Another part of it is theory of mind, like for uh, primates to be able to uh, band together and work together as a group, especially human primates, even Homo erectus could hunt together. Uh, It was a huge, huge advantage. But to be able to do that well, you have to be able to model what the other person, what the other people in your group are thinking, right? You have to be able to understand their thoughts and feelings kind of intuitively, which is called theory of mind. And um, a side effect of theory of mind is that you can imagine what you might be thinking and feeling in the future. You know, you can model yourself. So we've got these various ways of modeling our own organism. And all, you know, and it is incredibly compelling because it's backed up by all this internal feeling like, Oh, you know how my stomach feels, how my legs feel right now, you know, all this kind of mindfulness meditation stuff. Like, so emotion, right? Emotion and body sense, other body sensations and all that, uh, back up and fortify and sort of underpin this concept of the self. So all that together, like wrapped in a ball in a bucket with eggs on top is an ego. Okay. I just had a, I just discovered something. You were talking about the planning. Yeah. I just figured this out. This is where proponents of, imagine I'm putting quotes around this, the secret. This is where they go wrong. Because what they're doing is looking backwards and saying, oh my God, I envisioned this happening and it came to fruition. Therefore, if I envision anything, I can create a new reality. But, yeah, and they'll take it to any length as if bet. they can change the universe itself. But what they're actually doing is just discovering this planning aspect this this innate ability of ours that could be absolutely true yeah it's really um that whole thing is uh, an amazing you know like misappropriation of agency (laughs) you know to imagine that your thoughts are changing the entire universe is slightly uh, egotistical 
slightly. Well, <laughs> you are being very kind right now. <laughs> but these are these are people who think you know uh, if you have cancer, you know you need to think it away. I mean, envision yourself without cancer in the future, and boom, there you go. I don't pretend that I know how the universe works, but some I would just say I bet it doesn't work like that. <laughs> right. It there are tools built in there. There are th- positive thinking is a good thing, right? Like having a good outlook or prospect for what's coming will help you, <laughs> but you're not going to actually affect any uh, uh the 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 hard physical truths. You're not going to um, affect the quantum flow, quantum flux. Well, well, now we got a problem because let's jump back to meditation. Yes. All right. I interviewed someone from uh, David Lynch Foundation. Yes. So I was trying to discover transcendental meditation. And what this was all about. And um, I found it very fascinating. I'm a huge David Lynch fanboy, so that probably piqued my interest, you know. Um, I actually attended uh, two of the lectures. They had me from go, like right right off the bat. They had me, they had me, they had me. But then in the second lecture, they lost me. They should have stopped talking. Because where they went to is to literally... um, Oh, when dropping consciousness down to the this eternal, uh, all-encompassing energy field, and then therefore you can change the entire world around you from that point. Right, they're talking about Svota theory, or you know, basically how sound energy can manipulate the universe. Right. So they should have stopped talking, and I might have joined up. <laughs> but <laughs> It's just mantra meditation, and mantra meditation is really powerful. It will make you feel good, that's for sure. Um, yeah, when, it, was the, it was the yogic flying. That's what, they lost me. I, didn't, I, I had forgotten about that. I probably saw that on uh, That's Incredible when I was eight years old or something. Yeah, you know, I, um, again, I, I've done so much... Um, practice in that realm and spent so much time in India and seen so much unbelievable shit that is completely impossible that who knows, maybe yogic flying exists, but I've never seen it. And, um, I haven't talked to any TM people who've seen it either, you know? So that's, it seems to be, um, they're actually talking about changing the gravitational field around your body. That's the, that's the explanation is that you're actually changing but I, well, I, I don't want to say it twice. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I get a little ramped up on this. But, um, all right. So, it- where are you at with meditation? Let's clear the air. I don't want to, I'm not trying to be negative on TM. I mean, that's not fair. I don't know anything about it, but that it was just a turnoff for me. Right. No, and for good reason. I mean, even if you could do that, why bother? <laughs> you know, that's how you're going to spend your time. Like, thousands of hours trying to turn, you know, change the gravitational field around your body. It's just, even if it were possible, why would you do that? Uh, much more important is just the, 
you know, the positive effect that doing the mantra can have on your, you know, uh, your brain and your body and your life. Um, you know, of course, mantra theory is very magical. You know, there's the, uh, the idea in Indian culture that, you know, these words and phrases are literally, you know, like magic spells that have tremendous power, but setting that aside completely, um, just repeating a sound in your mind hour after hour during meditation, it is very helpful mainly because it sort of plugs the self-talk channel with noise and so uh, stops all the negative self-talk and all the relentless, uh, meaningless self-talk. So this is and, kind of a boring yourself in a way, as uh, Lindsay and I just talked about previously? Um, what's interesting is that your mind can get on board with it. But that's not the point. The point is that for most of us, um, we start out with a tremendous amount of negative self-talk going on all the time, which is just um, not good for you. Even, you know, purely psychologically, it is not good for you. And it's really hard to stop. But one way to work with it is to just fill the channel with something else. You know, so if if the self-talk channel is filled with a mantra, you know, it's not filled with negative self-talk. So, you know, one of the ways to um, uh, stop hurting, you know, to, to feel better is to stop hurting yourself. So plugging the channel with negative self-talk is like, or I mean, uh, plugging the channel that's normally filled with negative self-talk is stopping hurting yourself. Uh, furthermore, once that channel gets really boring, like what you're talking about, where you know what sound is going to be there all the time, it just kind of that it, it mellows out that entire, um, you know, an adult human being is tremendously focused on their own mental self-talk. And usually it's a kind of relentless stream of nonsense. Yeah. Neg- I've, <clears throat> I've personally talk. explored a lot of the self-talk ideas, um, being involved in some MLMs in the past, multi-level marketing. Yes. And they use this as a, that's their number one tool, um, is self-talk. And they just program you with um, a lot of information, books, audio tapes, whatever. At the time it was tapes when I was involved, you know. So it's all positive reinforcement stuff, but it's uh, channeled, you know, in a direction where it's it's not exactly well-rounded. Let's put it that way. An example, Brian, because I'm totally unaware of what you're talking about. You don't know about multi-level marketing? It's like Amway. Amway, whatever. you know, name any of, uh, there's tons of them. You know, the pyramid schemes is uh, the larger, sure, the larger sure. picture of it. Well, they focus heavily on self-talk to um, change the way you think. You oh. know, this, okay, look, you've discovered this. This is, the, this, is, this is your future. Now, let's reprogram your mind. And they, they flood you with audiobooks, audio tapes, positive thinking. They start light with like Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. Um, uh, what are the, some of the Dale Carnegie books? Uh, the Magic of Thinking Big, right? To mm-hmm. kind of blow your mind up, to, to, to kind of expand your consciousness a bit. And then they shove in 
their channel, what, what they want, now want you to focus on. And then they use that power of positive thinking to, they flood your mind with self-talk of success. And whatever the tools are of, of their mechanism, of, you know, of their economy. So it had a real negative effect on me. Um, you know, it was brainwashed. Right. And right. so that's why I've always been skeptical of meditation, um, especially just filling my mind with, say, a sound thought or something. Um, like I asked Chris Bush from TM, all right, so what is this? What the hell to, is there to say that there's some innate goodness that's going to take over? Uh, you know, if I start exploring meditation, it's really difficult for me to say. I'm I hear what you're saying. removing a part of myself, but I'm not filling it with um, knowledge. I'm emptying. What's to say what's going to fill the void? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's a question worth exploring. Um, you know, in mantra meditation, what fills the void is the sound, right? And in, at least in terms of English, it's a meaningless sound. Let's say the most, this TM uses more complex mantras, but the simplest mantras you could do would be either like Om or Ram, right? Neither of which mean anything in English. And so you're just, in a way, letting the self-talk channel have a rest, and for most adult humans, that's a real relief. Okay, okay. I see you there. You know? Sure. Mm-hmm. The, um, so I have a lot of experience with that kind of meditation, but the sort of meditation that I'm most interested in now and do myself and teach is mindfulness meditation, which is pretty different than, than um, mantra meditation. Well, and let's go my, there. Tell me. In mindfulness meditation, um, in its biggest form or in its widest definition, you're basically learning to focus on sensory experience, okay? And that can be any sensory experience. So anything from almost like what an artist would do, like getting really good at looking at the visual field around you really clearly, really carefully, um, to internal stuff, what, what you could call like internal senses. So, you know, um, feeling the, uh, body sensations associated with your emotions or feeling, you know, the most common one is following the body sensations of breathing and so on. But the idea is getting very high granularity on your senses. Turns out that that's a really interesting and useful thing to do. Hmm. I'm trying, I'm, I'm hanging in there. We're going to have to go a little further. Ask me some questions. <laughs> so, our, so we're going to go into sensory exploration. Are there certain things that people are more tuned to, more naturally you know, as one person, should they focus on a certain thing or do you have to discover this? If someone, you know, oh, I'm a visual person or I'm... It's another thing you learn in sales school is uh, people are auditory learners, visual, emotional. 
So right. how do you use these tools? Well, um, one of the quick, you know, quickest and easiest ways to use the tools is to begin working with emotion. And what, um, for whatever reason, most people don't conceptualize emotion as being a body sensation. Most of us think of it as being sort of an idea. But it turns out that emotions are mainly physical. So, um, you know, if I say, hey, how are you feeling right now? A typical American will answer with an emotion like I'm pissed off, but then the rest of everything they say will be I'm pissed off because this person did this and I did that and they said this and da 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 It's a whole story. But the real answer to the question is I'm pissed off. And so if we explore that in a mindfulness way, I would say like, well, how do you know you're pissed off? And it it's not that whole story. It's like, well, actually, because, you know, my eyebrows are furrowed and kind of tense and my eyes are slitted and I'm scowling and my fists, my hands are balled up in fists and my heart is racing and I'm seeing red. So it's a whole bunch of body sensations. And it turns out that uh, all emotions have a body expression component. And that's really pretty much, I don't know, 95% of what's going on. So are you talking about tackling the anger from the opposite end, from the body back inwards? Is that, or am I not hearing I you right? What verb used? Echoing? What's that? I couldn't hear what word oh, you Oh, sorry. Um, when you're, you know, what angle you're approaching this, it sounds like... Yeah. Are saying yeah. so if you want to attack anger, so going from the body back in, you like say you have the clenched fists. So to start with those fists instead of the brain itself, is that Yes. But first of all, we're not going to attack it. We're not gonna there's nothing wrong with feeling appropriately angry. But um what we are gonna do is learn what that is by getting really good at mindfully attending to the these body sensations so oh okay let's notice you're angry let's see what you're feeling well there you have those tightly clenched fists so focus really clearly on the left one and feel the tension and feel the joints and feel the the way the blood's moving through there and let's hang with that for like a half an hour you know and really 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 explore it in high detail and the same thing with the furrowed brows and the same thing with the uh, slit eyes and the clenched jaw and the whole thing. A half an hour is a long time. Yeah. It, um, to me, I mean, from my world, that's a long time. Yeah, you know, or one minute or ten minutes, whatever. But the idea is that um, to explore emotion as a body sensation or as a series or a collection of body sensations is a very powerful thing to do. Um, and as you know, Dan Siegel and all these brain res- researchers have shown, it actually really changes your, uh, the actual thickness of certain important brain structures like the prefrontal cortex. So that you get a lot better at interoception. And it turns out that interoception, the feeling of your own internal body sensations, uh, you know, external sensation, 
is perception, but internal sensation is interoception. And getting better at that is a really powerful thing to do uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. One, because you can detect earlier and earlier and earlier when an emotion is arising, which means you can begin to work with it. Oh, that's super cool. That's super cool. Um, Because I have a bunch of toddlers that I am (laughs) in charge of. And one of the first things I ever read was um, to stop a temper tantrum, never let it happen. And that pissed me off the first time I heard that. Like, screw you for saying that. That's just some bullshit cop-out. But it's actually true. Um, How have you seen it be true? Oh, you can stock it. I am... I should have a TV show called The Child Whisperer. I could <laughs> whisper at any child down out of any situation. I'll rarely, I'll even do it in a grocery store or something, but I don't like to interact with people in public. <laughs> but, and I, oh, it, let's see. Let me focus for a second on something I can do. It's, it's almost like a magic trick. It's, it's just a misdirection act in a way. So because um, taking advantage of the child's mind, um, so the, the, the the quickness of their mind, yeah. the the uh, fact that they, you, you you could just these they're just so snappy and then they'll get stuck, you know. But you can just bring them right back, or prevent it from happening by knowing signals. Like so, if you were saying like, where does anger start? Perhaps it's your furrowed brow at first. That's long before the clenched fist pointing at the gods in the sky, right? So you just have to see these cues in your children. Right. And so with mindfulness, you're learning to see them or more, more appropriately said, feel them in yourself before they get big. And so when you're getting more and more sensitive, feeling these emotions arising early, then it's just like you, Brian, are saying with a child, you can begin to work with it before it even happens and head it off at the pass. And it turns out the more you do this, you actually grow, you know, thickness in the brain structures that allow you to do it a lot better. But if that were all it was, it would just be, you know, really useful for you. But it turns out that when that ability to detect this in yourself grows, it makes it easier to detect it in others also because it's the same system. Like I was saying, the one of the ideas about how we can understand ourselves is that we evolve the ability to others understand other people. And after all, you're a person too. So you have the innate ability to make that model of yourself. And it's the same thing with all the um, <clears throat> the part of your brain that gets really good at noticing emotional expressions from the inside out, it gets good at noticing it in other people too. So you get more sensitive not only to yourself but to others. And so, you know, as they used to say in the 60s, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And you know, meditating in this way helps you become less a part of the problem. You know, you're just causing less mayhem with your emotions, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of getting in there early and also working with other people better. And so that's just, just one tiny bit of mindfulness where you're meditating on emotion, but you can also apply the same ideas to meditating on self-talk 
can meditate on the images that arise in the mind's eye. You can meditate on regular type body sensations like non-emotional type body sensations. You can meditate on other people's voices, other people's eyes. You can meditate on, you know, sights and sounds uh, of nature. It's There's a, a huge, vast amount of stuff to work with, and it's all really interesting and helpful. Hmm. What are the... <clears throat> What are the familiar names uh, or practices of mindfulness meditation? Are there like schools of thought that someone might recognize like, oh, that's a mindfulness technique or something? Yeah, you know, in America, almost all mindfulness comes from one school, the Ajahn Chah school from Thailand. That's what, um, you know, um, like, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield, who I saw today at the conference, Wisdom 2.0 conference, um, they all came from this one particular school in uh, Thailand. And so when people, uh, and in a really stripped down version of their stuff, is what John Kabat-Zinn teaches. And so, you know, the most obvious mindfulness meditation in the world is meditating on your breath. That's the one everyone knows. You know, you're just going to meditate on the sensation of breathing. And that could be the air moving through your nose or your lungs rising and falling or whatever. But that's sort of the most well-known technique. Um, but there's many, many schools of thought. And, um, and that's just one kind, you know, mindfulness is just one kind of meditation. So there's a lot of others and, and they're very useful. Um, but it fits together with what I was saying earlier about the ego because um, once you get some facility with this way of um, really tracking your own experience, then you can do some kind of wizard stuff with it. For example, if you get good at tracking mental images and then in other me meditation you get good at tracking self-talk and then in other meditation you get good at tracking the body sensations associated with emotion. Now you have, you can track three different things in your own experience, your mental imagery, your mental talk, and your own emotions. And if you work with all three of those at once, that is a pretty good working definition of an ego. Self-talk, self-directed mental imagery, and your emotions that are arising moment by moment. And if you can tr follow all those things and see how they separately arise and fall, all of a sudden you're having a very, very interesting and useful experience, which is you're seeing the construction the moment-by-moment moment construction and then moment-by-moment moment falling apart of your own ego image. Mm. So this is what um, I've seen uh, a blog of yours. that This is deconstruction. That's correct. Right. Uh, so you take this ego, and if you draw it backwards, it would be the images, talk, emotions. That would be deconstructing ego? Yeah. You're just why It's like... Um, it's like, you know, when you're a kid and you listen to music, it just sounds like music, but then you learn an instrument and all of a sudden you hear a rock song and you're like, oh, there's the bass and there's the drums and there's the lead guitar and there's the singer. You haven't, you know, this is what, this is what's so um, misunderstood. We're not trying to 
kill the ego. You know, that would be making ourselves psychotic and, you know, non-functional. You don't want to stop the music. What you want to do is be able to see that the music is composed of all these elements and that, you know, these different instruments and it doesn't have any intrinsic um, entity-ness. Right. So this is like enlightened awareness is a better state than staring at a, you know, like the allegory of a cave, of the cave, right? Staring at the shadows and that's the entire universe. And yet if someone were to reveal to you, actually look at this and this and this, this is um, enlightening, right? That's so right. we could be talking about actual enlightenment for some dumb Western bloke like me that could Absolutely. actually happen. <laughs> it's not even that big a mystery. I mean, once you look at, if you can sit moment by moment and watch those things happening, you can no longer believe that that ego is you. Okay. You can still use it. It's still functional still powerful but the sense of that as an identity collapses okay there you go that's uh, at least first level enlightenment whoa how um, long will this take me and how much does it cost <laughs> <laughs> except it does take time and yeah. it just depends on how uh, you know different people have facility with it but but it's not a mystery. It's not magic. You know, it's like, let's just take this clock apart and see what it's made of. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and you're not doing it so you can become a clockmaker. No. Yeah. Because the more you believe that's you, the more pain you're in all the time. And the less you believe it's you, you know, the more effective you can become in your life because you're not caught up in trying to defend certain mental images or, you know, this is the crazy thing when it makes humans tremendously good planners to have mental concepts, but it also, there's a whole bunch of bugs that enter that information system to the point where, you know, you have people uh, willing to die because they love the Oakland Raiders or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's a bug in the system. That's called identification with a mental concept, right? There's a, a picture in somebody's mind uh, of the of the Raiders outfit, and there's a strong emotion associated with it, and there's some good self-talk around it, and now um, they're identifying with that. That is now me. And so when that gets threatened, it's life-threatening. When a mental concept gets threatened all of a sudden you feel life-threatened. And that's a bug in the system. There's no reason for that stuff. But now we're discovering that these are tools that have actually been used against us ever since Bernays. Say more. You know, um, what's his name? Edward Bernays? Um, basically, uh, how does it go? He... he that like he, some he was just able to uh, program people right. by identifying things oh do, you're a woman you want to be powerful oh you know uh, you want to be recognized uh, socially accepted and aware smoke these cigarettes 
It's, it's what all the gals are doing. And you see it, and you identify with it, and it, it's just, um, I, I, I wish I had my head around it. it. It's far from my mind at the moment, but it, it's that whole idea. Um, and it can be tied to nationalism, patriotism, um, and taken to any degree. You got- and, and the more core it is, like if it's nationalism, perhaps it's your freedom, right? It's... And if- in somebody's mind and a word in their head and associate it with a strong emotional sensation in their body and get them to identify with that, they'll do anything. Right. But so this goes back to the your 9-11, looking at 9-11 and terrorism and things. That's exactly Exactly, correct. right? Yep. Because, you know, sure, there is the whole um, uh, political piece of you know, how different countries have affected other countries over history, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the reason most people are blowing themselves up. You know, it's a very personal thing, and it has to do with believing a few ideas really strongly. You know, so strongly that you're willing to, you know, you you feel like your own life is threatened because the idea is threatened. But guess what? Ideas can't be threatened. So... You know, if through meditation you over and over again are used to, you've become trained in not identifying with ideas and seeing how ideas are made of pictures and words in your head and then watching over and over how physical emotions get attached to these ideas and those three things together start becoming like a um, a uh, neural network that gets activated over and over, mm-hmm. you know. What I see is I'm thinking of something that seems really amazing with this. It's like a removal of fear, but not through bravado or an action. Like typically to remove fear, you have to jump into the face of danger and stab something, right? Right. Or break something. Where with this, you can dismantle the fear or whatever it is that someone or some your world has you know created around you without the motive without the motivation you know you're you're responding not reacting that's right and it's very um common in fact to begin to notice what different fears are triggered by and to see you know once you s- it's like looking behind the curtain. Like once you can see how the thoughts and feelings are wired together and that they're just made of these sensory experiences, you can start to sort of, um, it's like diffusing a bomb, you know, you just kind of, okay, we'll take this, you know, take the detonator out and remove the wire. Okay. That reaction just doesn't occur anymore. I love it. I love it. Nobody can threaten you by threatening your idea. Mm Mm-hmm. You just know better. Um, On the other hand, you know, um, emotions are very deep, evolved mechanisms, right? They're there to guide and direct our behavior. Darwin showed that, you know, human emotion comes from animal precursors. In in his last book, he went into that. Um, uh, The whole idea that you're going to somehow... Um, stop having certain emotions 
is just ridiculous. Yeah, but you know? that's that's just it. You're searching for the true emotions and not those imposed or prodded out of you by the that, world that you're subject to. That's right. That's exactly right. And furthermore, you're then looking to see those arising in yourself early enough that you don't like act out, you know, that you don't react to these emotions over and over in a blind, you know, stumbling, destructive manner. Yeah, it's that toddler thing again. Yeah. You see them arising and you're not trying to stop them. You still let the emotion happen in your body, but you know better than to just blindly express it out into the world. And that is a difference that makes all the difference. So, and furthermore, then when that's happening, like what you're calling true emotion, that just starts to be like body energy. I mean, it starts to just feel good because you're not blocking them, but you're also not, um, you know, so that you're not blocking them and you're also allowing them to happen. So it feels good. And yet you're not creating all this mayhem. What I like is that this, like you were talking about, you know, peeling back the curtain, you know, the Wizard of Oz thing, is that, well, I've managed to uh, encounter some of this uh, wisdom (laughs) um, without meditation by just seeing fallacy. Um, I now see corporate entities and politicians as basically toddlers in in the middle of a full-blown fit. (laughs) whether it's an Apple CEO announcing the new product, and this is a very happy presentation and it's a wonderful thing. What he's doing, he's a, he's a fitted toddler. He's lost his fucking mind. This is the greatest thing in the world. You cannot live without this product. It is going to revolutionize the world. And I want to just, I wish the world would yawn for a moment when one of those presentations, I wish the whole, I, if everyone's computer were to turn off for 10 seconds, it would stop the freaking temper tantrum. <laughs> I can't stand it. Same thing with a politician. Um, oh, this is great. I'm going to go. I've got, wow, I could go on for th- seven hours on this one. Tell me more. <laughs> Oh, jeez. No one's ever given me permission. Usually I'm told to quiet down. You're oh, up. Well, I've been told like even in the in the barber shop I'm getting my hair cut. I have a rather unique hairstyle. So I have a very specific barber I go to and it's a horrible barber shop, but I need this guy. I need him. And he asked me what I'm into, you know, what I'm encountering. I tell him about um interviews I'm doing. And some of the things I'm discovering, and a big, fat, angry man sitting in front of me told me, that's not barbershop talk. Wow. And I said, you know what? You're right. It's not. I'm sorry. And I just sat there in silence. So that's kind of my explanation for not being allowed to express these ideas. So it's kind of hard to get them out. It's not a regular thing of mine. Yeah, but it's got so much juice behind it. It's really fascinating. <laughs> you know what it started for me um, is with food. 
of all things. Um, I was just a big, fat, bloated, sick, sad piece of crap, basically. And I watched the movie Food, Inc. And I said, oh, shit. That's right. Food doesn't come from a grocery store. Oh, shit. And that food's really, really bad. And then I just went on a course of discovery over the past, uh, whatever it's been now, five or seven years. And that's just, I'm like tumbling, like through (laughs) all kinds of new information. But that's the one I stick with most, is the food angle. Because it's something we all do every day. And I think it's the best approach to help heal people. And it's the food angle that turned you on to the fact that you're being lied to. Right, right. That was peeking through the curtain there, right. Like the, the, if you've, have you ever seen Food, Inc.? They no. do a wonderful job on the intro of showing you the, the branding and the labeling on the packages in the supermarket, and it's pastoral, and it's barns and you know all greenery and pasture and all these wonderful artifacts from our mind you know from our history the stories but when you actually look at what the hell is in that it's just industrial waste it's disgusting that that piece of meat is uh, it should not exist (laughs) And discovering that, to me, was a a real mind-blowing moment. Wow, that's really cool. Now, I'm yeah, not a I, vegan or anything. I'm a paleo meat-eating maniac, but... Yeah, I know. That's it's, hilarious. <laughs> it's just the wisdom of, you know, what, what we're being fed and... Hmm. Yeah, I, um, uh, one of my first jobs was uh, at a food co-op in Michigan called Wolf Moon Food Co-op that does not exist anymore. Um, but they're it was, usually short-lived. <laughs> it was around for a long time, but it, it finally um, finally expired. But that was a beautiful place. And, you know, I remember uh, getting heavily schooled in you know, what's really going on with food. Now, in my case, that ended up making me be a vegetarian for over 30 years. Um, And it's only in the last eight months that I've begun eating meat again. But I definitely had the same experience of like, oh my God, what's going on with food? I need to do something very different. Interesting. Yeah, I went vegetarian for 18 months after the day after I watched Food, Inc. Yes. Right, it's a powerful thing, for because it, you know, my vegetarian thing, combined together with like Indian religion and stuff like that, it just made it really easy to be vegetarian for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But now at, at this age, I started noticing that I was uh, feeling kind of uh, something I hadn't felt before, which was a little bit low energy and a little bit craving, uh, like eggs, which I, it just never happened before. So. I um, and you had not been eating them. No, no, no. And then craved them. After thirty years, yeah. <laughs> wow. To feel like I might want to eat that, and so I, you know, I did, and it was. Uh, I had this like full body high, like I was practically 
you know, drunk on the feeling of protein. That's pretty funny because I, I kind of rail against people in the food health nutrition movement that tell people to listen to their bodies. I always think it's a bunch of bunk and that no one has, has any clue what their, their body's saying or actually needs. But in your case, Maybe I'm going to take exception. <laughs> you actually did listen to your body. And on the other hand, I've got a lot of years of listening to my body. You know? Right, right. That was my greater point. Right, because you, you, that channel's full on open. Maybe, you know. At least in that case, if, let's say it was a, a fortunate coincidence. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Some know. people say there are no coincidences. <laughs> it's just so funny because, of course, I'm uh, friends with Lindsay, like the, the paleo master. And so <laughs> it's really <laughs> she's been really helpful in uh, uh, helping me relearn how to like do things like cook meat dishes and stuff. Because I just have no idea. It's just those simple things. Um, but I haven't done any of them for 30 years. <laughs> so that's been really fun. Hey, look. People eating a Western, the, what they call SAD, the standard American diet, they've also been in the wilderness for 30 years. Trust me, they don't know how to cook meat either. They don't even know what meat is. You being a vegetarian is very similar to... These, uh, these people, they don't know. They have no idea, they, no clue whatsoever. We are just eating a hamburger from yeah, a yeah, and it's just fuel. You know, it makes me happy. I was commenting today. We were leaving work. I was working with my two uncles. I love days like today. I think that's why I'm in a good mood because I was working with my family. Right. And we were driving. We were leaving. We were going to drive back to um, their showroom, and. I drove by a uh, Denny's and uh, Bob Evans, and it was around two two o'clock. So it's after lunch, and yet the parking lots were packed. I, it was like overflow. It was like it was a sellout, <laughs> sellout crowd at those two places, and I was like, man. Uh, everything's wrong so so wrong there's no line at my farm market at the farmer's market where i shop or at the csa where i go they don't have as good of advertising brian well they also don't have highly addictive (laughs) foods true i can only eat at most a pound of beef but like once a day I could eat probably 18 boxes of cereal, though. Probably 20. Yeah. Or gruel or oatmeal <laughs> or whatever the hell they're, sausages and gravies. All right. So I'm, I'm off the rails now. i got to wind it back in. Well, it's almost 1 in the morning where you're at, isn't it? Yeah, that's about normal. I go to about 2.15. Uh Hey, um, so let's do a little focus here. Um, where should, um, where should people go to learn more about you and, and all that, that stuff? Um, well, in terms of the, like, story we're telling ourselves about being human thing, that's Mm -hmm. being, um, in terms of my kind of faded out there, say it again, that's 
beinghuman.org. Okay. Um, and then in terms of uh, the deconstructing yourself, mindfulness, meditation angle, that's I have a website called deconstructingyourself.com. And so those are the two big places. Also, check out the book Ego. It's actually a really fun book. You know, uh, it's right there on Amazon. My name's Michael Taft. <laughs> that's my plug. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, is there by chance an audio version? There uh, is actually. Really? And there's a yep, and a Kindle version. Is so, it on Audible? Um, I can't remember, but it's okay. definitely exists and there's a kindle version too all right excellent cool man yeah we do get a little speculative there at the end but we stay within the bounds of uh you know scientific materialism you know no aliens are invoked (laughs) all right (laughs) so do um do you did you pursue any degrees do you have any um accredited specialties or anything um you know, I'm just kind of a jackass of all trades. Um, mm-hmm. I am interested in everything. So I have a, a bachelor's degree in German literature uh, from a million years ago. And then everything since then is just self-taught. So lots of reading, lots of talking to people, lots of working with other teachers. I love it. Yeah. And uh, I have been considering uh, going back for an advanced degree here pretty soon. Um Pretty much because it's just another really interesting thing to do. I mean, to me, the world is the most interesting possible thing. And I just love to learn more and more about it. Yeah, if you're doing it for self-fulfillment, then go, right? Go and do it. If if you're doing it because you need a job, then you're kind of screwed. Nothing wrong with eating. <laughs> yeah, there's food. Don't There's food. I... People don't believe me. There's food. Um, friend of mine was building a garden, right? He wanted to build an urban garden. I'm like, oh, you guys are doing it all wrong. I know a guy. I bring in this guy, Maurice. Maurice is like, compost, compost, compost. So I'm like, all right, where do we find it? He's like, go to the, we have this famous place in Cleveland called the West Side Market. It's this huge market place. It's ridiculous. So I go there, and he, I'm like, well, where's this compost? He's like, you go in the back, you go down the alley, and just look. I'm like, all right. So I go back there. I'm on my own. I got my pickup truck and a shovel. There's so much freaking food being thrown away. It's, they're just chucking it into an alley. So I just went in there with a shovel and just started scooping it up and putting it in buckets, and I filled my whole pickup truck with free food. Now you'd think, it's garbage. But after a few days of this, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to eat some of this. There were berries and fruits and vegetables. I'm telling you, man, there's a lot of food. You don't have to get a college degree. You can go with me to the West Side Market, go down that alley... Now get you some food. You know, it's funny. My friend uh, Griff in Colorado has taken me out. He's a dumpster diver, does that for a living. Really? (laughs) We had giant feasts, but we put on whole huge parties, and every single thing at the party is 
from a dumpster, not only all the food and cakes and delicious, giant, sumptuous meals, but even the music, even the thing that the music is playing on, even the party favors, even the lights, even the the seats, the tables, the dishes. The, it's amazing. The refuse of the world could feed and entertain the world. Exactly. It's, it's almost mandatory that shit gets thrown away to fuel the economy. If everyone discovered all the refuse, all the detritus of the world, the economy would collapse. We should all do that. <laughs> Please don't discover. Everyone, go dumpster dive tomorrow. Pick up used electronics. I found an old record player a few weeks ago and have been going crazy playing old vinyl. There's so much available. Oh, what a wonderful world. You know, I'm one of the most negative people, and this has really helped. That's the only reason I do this show. Yeah, you get uh, some uh, joy out of hanging out and talking on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Someone to talk to. Well, it's a blast. Man. Thanks, Michael. This has been really fun. Thanks, Brian. Let's talk more. Anytime. All right. Good night for now. All right. Good night, man. Take right. it easy. Bye. Bye.